0: Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, if you would open with me now to the book of Romans, chapter 9. With a message entitled, God is Righteous. Romans chapter 9, and this morning we'll be picking up in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it's not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore... He has mercy on whom he wills, and on whom he wills, he hardens. And you will say to me then, well, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? Shall we pray together? Father, we do thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for the living hope that we have found in Christ. And Lord, we ask that you would grant to us wisdom, understanding, clarity, Lord, as we consider the scriptures today Lord, we pray if there are any here today who have yet to receive Christ as their Savior, Lord, that before this time is over, they would realize and recognize their need for Jesus. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. In coming to the ninth chapter of Romans, you arrive at the second major division within this epistle where the Apostle Paul began to write about the nation of Israel. Many of the Jews had rejected Jesus as their Messiah. And thus, one of the questions that would naturally be raised was, well, what happens to all the promises then that God made to Israel? What about the covenants that were made with our forefathers? Are they now to be nullified? no longer in existence. To answer these questions, Paul goes back and he traces the history of the nation in the past. And then he looks at the nation in the present. And then he considers the future of the nation of Israel. And in so doing, he highlights the sovereignty of God at work and reveals that God knows the beginning from the end. And he is working all things according to his will and purpose. Paul began by pointing to the life of the patriarchs. He revealed that Abraham had two sons. Their names were Ishmael and Isaac. But only one of the sons, Isaac, was the one who would receive the blessing. Then he looked at Isaac's two sons, Esau and Jacob. And how that before they were born, Jacob was to receive the blessing. The Lord declared his selection of Jacob before either one of these boys had the opportunity to manifest any characteristics, make any decisions, or even live their lives. But after they were born, you begin to read the story about them, what the Bible records, you understand a little bit better why it was that God made the decision That he made. However, with our limited, finite human perspective and understanding, it would be easy to conclude somehow that God was unfair to make his choice before they were born. And it is with that backdrop that Paul asks the rhetorical question found in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Or to put it another way, is God unfair? Paul answers the question he asks, with the strongest negative possible, certainly not. God cannot be unjust or unfair because that would be entirely against his nature and character. It is interesting, however to note how quickly men are ready to accuse God of not being fair. It's also worth noting that sometimes those who question the fairness of God are the same ones that deny the existence of God. Yet all of us, in looking at life in a fallen world, we have seen injustice. We have observed good people, in our estimation, suffering. And we've seen wicked people prospering. And we ask the question, why would God allow that? It doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem right that an evil person could prosper. How can that be fair? Of course, the devil has been challenging the righteousness of God from the very beginning of man's existence in the Garden of Eden, when he tempted Eve. The devil's basic premise was, God is not fair. God is holding something back from you, Eve. See, see he's put that tree there, knowing that if you eat it, then you're going to be like him. He's really concerned about this, and he's unfair. And so Eve, of course, took of the fruit, and Adam did as well. Is there unrighteousness with God? The answer is certainly not. But in order to illustrate his point that God is not unjust nor unfair in his dealings with man, Paul points to other examples found in the Old Testament. And he will look at God's sovereignty, first of all, in how that God pardoned erring Israel, and secondly, how he punished erring Pharaoh. Verse 15, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy and I'll have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. Paul reaches back to an Old Testament illustration taken from the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus. And it was there that Moses, you remember, had gone up onto Mount Sinai where he was to receive The Ten Commandments from the Lord spent 40 days up on the mountain. And while on the mountain, down below, the people were waiting for Moses to return. They began to worship an idol in the form of a golden calf. Now keep in mind, that's right after they had said to the Lord, all that the Lord says to us, we will do. That didn't last very long. They had broken the first two commandments before they ever got started. But following this incident of idolatry, 3,000 people died. Moses then went back up onto Mount Sinai to pray and intercede, asking God to show the people mercy. At that time, the nation had forfeited any claim to the mercy of God. Nevertheless, in Exodus 33, having heard the prayer of Moses, the Lord responded and he said, "'I will have mercy.'" on whomever I will have mercy, I will have compassion, on whomever I will have compassion. He did not say, I will judge and annihilate whoever I will judge and annihilate. So there, he didn't say that. He said, I'll have mercy and compassion, even when it was clearly undeserved. This mercy and compassion that was given to Israel, even after they had turned away from God that delivered them out of their bondage, it wasn't because, as verse 16 says, the one who wills or him who runs. That's another way of saying it wasn't based on human merit that God showed them this mercy that they didn't deserve. God showed them mercy because he's merciful, and in his sovereignty, he has the right to show mercy to whom he desires to show mercy, And I'm thankful for that this morning because I don't deserve God's mercy and yet he has given to me mercy. Israel didn't deserve the mercy of God for what they had done. You and I don't deserve the mercy of God for what we have done. And yet God offers mercy to us today. He shows mercy to anyone who will receive it. He has that freedom to do so because he is sovereign, because he is God, he can be merciful. The Bible tells us in Psalm 62, verse 12, Alas, to you, O Lord, belong mercy. Psalm 100, in verse 5, says, For the Lord is good, and his mercy is everlasting. In the New Testament, in Ephesians chapter 2, it tells us, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he has loved us. And then, of course, in Titus chapter 3, It says, but when the kindness and the love of God, our Savior, toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy. He saved us through the washing and regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Folks, listen, God desires to show you mercy. He's a merciful God. He doesn't give us what we deserve. I have learned not to pray, God, give me what I deserve. <laughs> Lord, give me justice. I pray that for other people, but not for me. I think of the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18. You remember, they went up to the temple to pray. And the Pharisee began to pray this eloquent prayer, talking about all of the amazing things that he had done and just parading all of his religious accomplishments before the Lord. And then it says that the tax collector was there and standing afar off, he would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat upon his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And the Bible says that man went away forgiven. He asked for God's mercy, and God showed him mercy. Paul is emphasizing it doesn't matter who you are, what your status is, what you've done in your life that you're ashamed of. God will still show you mercy because of his sovereignty. He is merciful, and yet there is another side to this truth concerning God's sovereignty that is equally difficult to understand from the human perspective, and that is this. God is able to harden a person who rejects him. And this example is seen in the person of Pharaoh. Look at what it says in verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, even for this same purpose, I've raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he has mercy and he hardens whom he hardens. First of all, make note of what Paul writes. For the scripture says. That's significant. This isn't Paul's opinion. This isn't his own line of reasoning. The burden of proof is placed squarely on the Word of God. By using Scripture as His proof and evidence, it will silence the objector even if it doesn't convince them. And again, this is important to me. There are occasions when people may be upset with me because I have said, the Scripture says, well, I don't like that. <laughs> I didn't write it. God wrote it. So your battle isn't with me, it's with the author. Don't shoot the messenger. I'm just delivering. Here it is. You t- it's between you and God. The person says, well, I don't like the fact that it says I shouldn't live with my girlfriend. I'm sorry. You know, the Bible talks, that's what God says. He says fornication is a sin. You shouldn't be involved with it. What are you doing? Well, I don't like the fact that this, Well. Your argument is not with me. It's not with what, it's with the scriptures. It's with God. And that is an argument, friend, that you won't win. Paul says, this is what the Bible says. And as believers in Jesus Christ today in this world, we need to be saying lovingly, but truthfully, this is what the Bible says. I know that's not popular with today's opinion. I know that's not necessarily Something that the culture applauds or appreciates. But we didn't say it, we just represent it. This is what it says. And you can either receive it or you can reject it. Paul says the scripture says, what does it say? He reaches back once again to the book of Exodus and he looks at Pharaoh. And by using Pharaoh as an example, he reveals another side of God's sovereign will and purpose. At the conclusion of the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, Jacob, who was the father, founding father of the nation of Israel, he and his descendants had moved down to Egypt because of a famine, the Bible says. And they were reunited with his son Joseph, who was now second in command to the Pharaoh. While dwelling in Egypt, the descendants of Jacob grew numerically. Eventually, Joseph died. And no longer was he in power. And the new Pharaoh, it says, didn't know Joseph, Exodus 1 tells us. And yet he recognized the numerical strength in the growth of the people of Israel. And so he made them slaves. And the Bible says during their time of bondage, the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor and made their life bitter with hard bondage. During their time of bondage, in distress, the people cried out to God for a deliverer. God, send us someone to take us out of this slavery. And year after year went by, but eventually God raised up a deliverer whose name was Moses. Now think about this. Moses and the Pharaoh that he confronted had history together. These men began their lives in the same place. Both were reared in a pagan household. "...of the Egyptian sovereign. Both received an education in pagan schools of idolatrous priests there in Egypt. Both enjoyed a standard of living that far exceeded the mud pit experience of the slaves. Both were heirs of royal privileges. However, their paths diverged when God intervened in the life of Moses." The Bible actually gives us a New Testament commentary on what happened to Moses there in Exodus. It says in Hebrews chapter 11, by faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked for the reward." Moses saw his people suffering, and he chose to identify with them. Now, his first attempt, the Bible tells us in Exodus, to be the deliverer, he failed miserably. He saw an Egyptian taskmaster beating a Hebrew slave, and he killed him. And then he fled for his life out into the desert where the Lord kept him and devoted the next 40 years to transforming Moses' character and then brought him back as the deliverer 40 years later. But Pharaoh, on the other hand, continued his privileged existence in the palace of Egypt and became its sovereign ruler. He spent 40 years living as he had always done, as a pagan. And when the proper time arrived for the next stage in God's redemptive plan, he brought these two men face to face. And Moses demanded the release of the Israelites But Pharaoh refused, claiming the right of sovereignty over them. And as the story of deliverance continues, the Lord began to send a series of plagues to loosen the grip of the Pharaoh in order to let the people go. Yet instead of repenting and letting the people go, what does the Bible say? He hardened his heart. There are three words in the book of Exodus, in the Hebrew language, that are used for hardening. The first means to make insensible, found in Exodus 7. The next word found in Exodus 10 means to make heavy or unimpressionable. The third word used means to be immovable, to solidify, to stiffen. This hardening process referred to in Exodus at least 15 times. Sometimes it says, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Other times, it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And what you're able to see clearly is the progression within Pharaoh's life. God gave Pharaoh a chance, repeated chances, to let the people go. And yet, he hardened his heart. He became, first of all, insensible. Then, unimpressionable. And eventually, he came to the place where he was immovable. So from the Exodus account, Pharaoh's heart was already hardened before Aaron and Moses arrived and showed up with the plagues and the power of God. And after each, listen, the first five plagues, the hardening of the heart was Pharaoh hardening his own heart in resistance to God. It wasn't until after the sixth plague when we read as Pharaoh was still resisting that God honored the decision that he made, and solidified his hardened heart. Pharaoh dedicated himself to evil in direct opposition to God's redemptive plan. This was Pharaoh's personal choice. He chose evil. God didn't choose it for him. However, the Lord did harden him. That is, he solidified his resolve to pursue the evil deeply embedded within his heart. God honored the decision of the rebellious leader, solidified it. Folks, it's very important to understand when you are considering studying the sovereignty of God that we are not to assume that God arbitrarily and directly forced upon Pharaoh an obstinate and stubborn resistance to himself you can never lay the evil of man at the door of God. God doesn't cause men to do evil. God simply brought Pharaoh to a place where he had to confirm the decision that was already in his heart. Pharaoh had every opportunity to repent and get right with the Lord. Even his own people said, Pharaoh, this is the hand of God. God is in this, the the real God, not the ones we serve. You need to stop this madness, and he would not listen. So God honored the decision that he made, and yet God's purposes in his sovereign will were still accomplished and brought to pass. Pharaoh is a prime example of people today. God gives them opportunity to turn from sin, to repent, even at times, may send a few plagues, as it were, into your life to get your attention. And you can resist his love. You can resist his mercy, his grace. But at some point, God honors the decision that a person makes and will and even give them over to what they're pursuing and what they've wanted. I don't know where that line is. I don't want to get anywhere close to it. But but the Bible reveals The Bible says in Hebrews chapter four, verse seven, listen, today, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Because what happens when you don't listen to the voice of the spirit drawing you, when you reject the Lord seeking to save you, you know what happens? You become insensible. Then you become unimpressionable. And at some point you're immovable. God, in his sovereignty, however, has the ability to show mercy. And in his sovereignty, he has the ability to honor a decision a person makes against him through hardening. These are the examples of God's sovereign will. And now, Paul gives the explanation of God's sovereign will. Because there are those, maybe even some here today, who would read this and say, I object. Well, what do you object? Look at verse 19. This was something that he anticipated, something that he had heard often. You will say to me then, Well, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? This doesn't make sense, Paul. I mean, explain this to me. How, listen. This is the reasoning of the objectors. If Pharaoh was accomplishing God's purposes, how can God find fault with Pharaoh? If God is sovereign, then it must be impossible to resist his will. And therefore, man can't be held responsible if he's lost. How can God blame man then for his actions? What does Paul respond with? You ready for this? He doesn't answer the question. Oh, come on, man. He doesn't answer the question. Why? Because he's dealing with the sovereignty of God that goes beyond man's ability to fully comprehend. He simply leaves the question unanswered, and there is no answer that the finite man can reason out or understand. He doesn't answer the question. But what he does say in verse 20 is this. But indeed, O man who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? As the creation of the loving creator God, we can never sit in a place of judgment and accuse God of being unjust because we don't fully understand all of his ways. Don't create God in your image. God is not like you. He's not like me. He is altogether completely different and separate than us. He is God. And if we attempt to judge the validity of God's actions, it would imply that we are more righteous than God. To sit in judgment of what God does or how he moves would be to say that man is somehow wiser than God. We aren't. There was a man who questioned God, had a lot of questions for God. His name was Job. By the way, it's not job, it's Job. (laughs) The Old Testament. But Job suffered tremendously. You remember, if you've read the book, sometimes I like to just get through it quickly. I think, man, Lord, don't let this happen to me. What happened to Job? But as you study Job's life, he lost his family, he lost his health, he lost all of his goods, all of his wealth, everything. And if that weren't bad enough, he was surrounded by a group of friends that he called miserable comforters. And they said, Job, we know why you're in the condition you're in because you're a sinner. And because of this, and this is what happened. If you weren't a sinner, and if you would, and they just heaped upon him, it was like insult after insult upon injury. And Job got to the place where he was so frustrated with the situation, and he lacked information, and he began to question God: Why did this happen? And why was I ever born? And how come this happened? What I just want to talk to you for a second, God. I wish I had a redeemer so I could go back and forth and I could present my case. And Job's just talking, talking, talking. and you understand the guy was hurting; he was suffering. But at the end of all of Job's questions and all of the miserable comforter's speeches, God speaks. And God asks Job some 80 questions. 80 questions from God. And he starts out, Job, where were you when I... Uh, I, don't, I don't know. I wasn't there. I don't know. Job, are you able to... Can you... Uh, No, I couldn't, no, I wasn't. I mean, just question after question after question after question. Now the Lord's asking questions. And all of the things that God is asking, Job has no understanding. He doesn't know how to answer these questions. God is revealing, Job, there are things that I'm doing that you could not understand. And what you're going through right now, you don't understand. But I'm still God, I'm still sovereign, and I'm still working these things out for good. And even in the midst of his suffering, there were moments when Job would say, I know that my Redeemer lives. I know that. I know that when I'm refined, I'm gonna come forth as gold. I don't understand everything that's happening, but I know this about you. And so God asked him all these questions. And when it's all done, let me tell you what Job's response is. Job 42, here's what he said. Then Job answered the Lord. He said, I know that you can do everything. And that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You ask, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said I'll question you, and you shall answer me. Well, I've heard you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, what does he say? I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job sat as the judge of God because he had limited understanding. He did not fully understand the purpose and plan of God in his sovereign will. And he struggled with it. But then he came to this place where he realized, Lord, I'm sorry. I repent of that mentality, of that attitude toward you. Because God exceeds our understanding. We are limited But have you ever found yourself to say something similar? God, why have you made me this way? I don't like where I am in life. Why, God? How come, Lord? And we forget about God's sovereignty or we look at sovereignty outside of the rest of his attributes revealed in Scripture. When we think of sovereignty... We may think of it from a human standpoint in a negative sense. If a person were absolutely sovereign in total power, that's tyranny. That's a dictator. Any person having that kind of power would be unhealthy. In our government, we have checks and balances. We say that absolute power corrupts absolutely And that is true with man because man is corrupt and sinful. But that's not God. God is sovereign. And attached to his sovereignty are all of the rest of the attributes of his deity, his grace, his mercy, his love. All of these things make up who God is, and he is not like us. In verse 21, he goes on to say, here's a question. Does the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? Paul never says here that God makes one for honor or dishonor, but he does use the example of a potter and the clay and says, the potter does have the ability to make what he desires from a lump of clay. He takes the clay, he fashions it, he shapes it, and he molds it into what he's creating. You remember in the Old Testament, Jeremiah the prophet, chapter 18. Jeremiah was told by the Lord to go down to the potter's house and to observe the work that the potter was doing. And there God was gonna reveal something to him. And the pottery, remember, he was making the clay, and he molded it, and then it was marred in his hand, and then he threw it out, and then he reshapes the thing. And and, and after Jeremiah observes this real-life illustration, the Lord says, that's what I'm going to do with Israel. They're, They're like clay in my hands. I have a plan. I'm molding and shaping them. Some of us today may be afraid of what God is molding and shaping in your life. You feel as though you're on the potter's wheel. And you're fearful, placing your life in the hands of one who sovereignly molds you into something. Listen, what you have to remember are the hands that are doing the molding and the shaping. They're the hands of Christ, of Jesus. And what do you know about his hands? They're pierced. And what does that speak of? His love. And when I understand that it's hands of love that are molding and shaping my life, loved me so much, loved you so much that he would die for you, perfect love casts out fear. Lord, mold, shape away. Whatever you're doing, have your way with me. Use me, Lord. Make me into what you want me to be. And so, a potter's hands, molding and shaping us. Maybe you're resisting. Maybe you're saying, what are you making? I don't want to be that. Get me off this wheel already. Sick of the pounding. Done with it. Oh, I'm over it. And yet God says, oh, if you only knew what I'm doing. Verse 22, then he asks, here's another question. He was asked a question, he fires back with questions. What if God, what if, that's hypothetical, what if God wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted for destruction, that he might make his riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. How about that question? <laughs> Again, make note of the fact that it's hypothetical. What if? And notice also the words fitted for destruction. At first reading, it would appear that it says God makes some for destruction and some for glory. Some would suggest that God creates some for hell and some for heaven, but that's not what it says. The word fitted here in Romans 9 Does not suggest that God made Pharaoh a vessel for wrath for the purpose of destroying him. The verb that is used here is what the Greek grammarians call the middle voice, making it a reflexive action verb, which simply means this it should read, fitted himself for destruction. He fitted himself. For destruction. God prepares men for glory, but sinners prepare themselves for judgment. God doesn't create people, folks, in order to damn them or to destroy them. God loves the world, and that's why He sent His Son to die. But if a person continues to reject the Lord Jesus as their Savior, at some point they have fitted themselves for destruction. They're going to eventually suffer the judgment of God if they reject God and his plan of salvation. God doesn't wish that any should perish, but that all should come to salvation. But a person that rejects the love and the mercy of God will one day be ripe for, fit for destruction. And yet, Paul says here in this same passage, God is long-suffering. He's long-suffering. God could have easily judged Pharaoh. I mean, the first time Pharaoh said, not gonna let the people go, could have smoked him right there. That would have been the end of the story, but he didn't. He was merciful. He was long-suffering. Some people have a false concept of God's long-suffering. There are those who misinterpret God's long-suffering and think that God... Must not exist because I haven't I haven't been judged. There's no God. Come on. They don't understand He's He's being long-suffering. Then there are other people who misinterpret the long suffering of God as weakness. He he can't, what's he gonna do? And they think that God's weak or far removed from his creation. No, he's long-suffering. And then there are even those who interpret the long-suffering of God as his approval. That God doesn't judge me for what I'm doing. I haven't. I haven't experienced anything yet. I mean, what? What are you talking about? You don't understand. God is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. Perhaps today you've been misreading the long-suffering of God. You've been going in the wrong direction, and you know that you're going in the wrong direction. And your wife told you, you're going in the wrong direction. (laughs) And you've said, I'm not stopping to ask for directions. I would rather be lost aimlessly for days than stop. Can I say to you in loving terms, don't be a fool. Maybe you've been wandering off the path, off the narrow path, and you're onto the broad road. Friend, don't despise the long-suffering of God. Turn back. Beginning at Romans 9.25, Paul now, as we wrap this up, returns to the question of the Jews. What's going to happen to the promises? What's going to happen to the Jewish people? Is God done with Israel? He returns back to that first question And he recalls the words of two prophets, Hosea and Isaiah. Both of them were contemporaries. These two Old Testament prophets, one ministered in the northern kingdom called Israel and the other ministered in the southern kingdom called Judah. You know this, right? That after Solomon, the kingdom of Israel, the 12 tribes divided. 10 went to the north called Israel. They were idolatrous. They did not have one godly king among them. They were all wicked. Then Judah went to the south with two tribes remaining. They had a few highlights with certain kings that were godly, walked in the ways of their father David, and brought temporary revivals. But what you have In looking at Hosea, what Paul is going to say, he's quoting from the book of Hosea, the Old Testament, and let me just paraphrase what he's going to present. He's going to say, in God's sovereignty, God has a plan for the Gentiles. That's what you can take away from it. And then he quotes from Isaiah, and what's he going to say there? God still has a remnant among the Jews. Just keep that in mind, those two things, as we conclude this morning. So look at what it says. Quotes from Hosea, verse 24. Even us whom he called not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. And he says also in Hosea, now he's proving this, I will call them my people who are not my people, and her beloved who was not my beloved. Who was that? I believe it's referencing the Gentiles. They weren't God's people. We weren't God's chosen people. And yet God always had a plan sovereignly to save Gentiles, praise God. And so he's quoting from Hosea, and it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you're not my people, they're gonna be called sons of the living God. God has a plan for the Gentiles. But then, you remember as Hosea was prophesying that the nation of Israel rejected his warnings. And so in 722 BC, they were carried away into captivity, intermarried with other nations, almost lost their complete identity. Meanwhile, Isaiah's over there prophesying in the south, and he's saying, hey, listen, over here in Judah, we better learn the lesson of what happened over there in the north. Don't be getting into idolatry, because as they were carried away into captivity, we're going to be carried away into captivity. And guess what happened? They were carried away into captivity. Babylon came in, dragged them away for 70 years. They were exiled from their homeland. Eventually, they were brought back. But in that, Isaiah prophesies, saying that God still had a plan. There was still a remnant. Look at what it says in verse 27. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. So now we're talking about Israel again. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. God's not done with Israel. There's a remnant, in other words. For he will finish the work. Cut it short in righteousness because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been made like Gomorrah. If God wasn't sovereignly working in the nation of Israel, they would have been cut off completely. But here, what Paul is saying is, listen, as he's looking at the sovereignty of God, God has a plan for the Gentiles to bring them to salvation. And God has a plan still for the remnant of the Jewish people. He's always had a plan. He is sovereign. Think about it, folks. In Exodus, God rejected the Gentiles and he chose the Jews so that through the Jews, he might save the Gentiles. And then the nation of Israel rejected his will, and yet they're going to be grafted back in. I mean, it's just a miracle how God works sovereignly. That, that is what you're going to take away from chapter 9. Whether it's Ishmael and Isaac, or whether it's Jacob and Esau, Moses and Pharaoh, whether it's the Gentiles or the Jews, or it's you and me, God is sovereignly working all things together for his perfect will and purpose. and I'm thankful because you might be sitting here today saying I'm, I I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what I'm doing. God knows what he's doing. We don't know what we're doing. We don't necessarily know what the next step is or we don't know what's around the corner. We don't know what the future holds. We don't know what the rest of this day has, but God's already there. He is already there. He knows what he's doing and Jesus said these words and let me leave you with this before we take communion. Here's here's what Jesus said, follow me. Let me just simplify it for you. Make it real simple. What do I need to do? I don't know, what do I do next? Let me me simplify it for you, John. Okay, Lord, what is it? Two words, can you you remember this? Let me write this down. (laughs) Here, Here it is. Follow me. Just follow me. That's all you just follow Jesus. And you know, I need things simple because I'm not that smart. I need it simple. The Lord says, This is it. Just follow me, and I will make you become whatever it is He's called you to be. I can do that, Lord. I can follow you. Lead me. I encourage you to follow after the Lord. Folks, as we conclude our time together, what a blessing. You talk about mercy. The Bible tells us that mercy triumphs, triumphs over judgment. You know where? At the cross. A merciful God. A sovereign God? Absolutely. A merciful God? Thankfully. And mercy triumphed over his judgment. He did not have to Die in our place, but he did because of his love. And so today we have the privilege of remembering him and what he's accomplished. Friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, can I just share with you communion? It's not for you, it's for the believer in Jesus Christ, it's for the person that believes that Jesus died for their sins, he rose again from the dead, he is their savior, it's for the believer. So if you're not a Christian, communion's not for you. But can I say this? Communion can be for you. Why not today respond to the love of God? Why not today say, Lord, forgive me of my sin. Lord, I turn from my sin. I want you to be my savior. And if you pray, From your heart by faith, asking God to save you? Folks, He will. He loves you. And so today, let's prepare our hearts for communion and remember our Lord. Father, we do thank you today for your mercy that has triumphed over judgment through the cross. Thank you that you have conquered sin, death, the devil through your death on the cross and your resurrection. Lord, we thank you today that you are in control of all things and that we have confidence that you are working all things together for good in our lives, Lord. Thank you for that reminder today. And as we remember you, Lord, we, just, we come back to the table, to the cross, and we remember you handled the greatest problem we would ever have. And if you took care of our salvation, Lord, you're going to take care of the rest. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name.